I was told a story a few days ago about an excavator operator here in the UK demolition business who was found to be working under the influence of drugs. Uh, obviously, that person was a potential danger to himself, to his colleagues, and quite possibly to local residents. So no great surprise, he was dismissed. Less than a week later, that same man was behind the levers of an excavator just up the road with a, a rival company. Now, to discuss this and other implications of drug culture within the demolition and construction sector, I'm delighted that my friend Matt Taylor has chosen to join us this morning. Good morning, Matt. Hi, Mark. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure and uh, lovely to see, uh, see you take part of one of your programmes again. Well, I, I think I think this is your second appearance. I think if you come back again for a third time, you get to keep the match ball or something. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, not entirely sure what we've agreed on that. But uh, uh, before we get into the issue of of drugs in demolition, can you explain who you know for those that haven't seen you before who you are and how you can speak about drug use and abuse? Okay, so my name is Matt Taylor. Uh, I'm a director of a company called uh, It's Test Kits. I've been uh, working within the drug and alcohol testing market for 20-odd years now, possibly a bit longer, um, with uh, my previous company and the one uh, that, that I represent now. Um, I uh, am a speaker worldwide with regards to drug and alcohol testing and policy within the UK, uh, and I take part in a lot of presentations, training, etc. I can write policies. I do write policies, uh, deliver training, uh, and that type of thing. And just recently, uh, obviously, in the last 12 months, uh, we've also been very intensely engaged within uh, COVID testing um, uh, within the same similar sort of customer sectors and markets as well. So I mentioned earlier that we were talking about a, a guy that had been fired for working under the influence of an unspecified drug. I didn't get the full story on that, uh, but was then re-employed almost immediately. If he'd been driving a car under the influence, he, he probably would have faced uh, prosecution and would very likely have lost his, his license. But here in demolition and presumably in construction as well, that's not the case. Okay. Uh, how come? Okay, so there's there's two things we've got to uh, understand. Um, drugs and alcohol in the workplace and uh, drugs and alcohol uh, while driving a vehicle, for instance, on, on the roads. Uh, if you stop by the police, it's a criminal offence and you'd be prosecuted and, and it goes down the same sort of lines as um, speeding or, um, you know, death by dangerous driving or whatever it might be, it's treated as a criminal offence. And they obviously have a, a right uh, to be able to withhold your, your license, to ban you, get you to sit more uh, tests, etc., etc. Um, within a workplace, completely different. So every workplace is different. Every industry is different. Um, if we look at the rail industry, the rail industry is probably the most heavily regulated um, industry within the UK with regards to drugs and alcohol testing. Uh, really came about since the Cannon Street Rail crash where the driver was found to have traces of cannabis in his system. Um, and essentially, uh, from that moment forward, things changed. Uh, I don't know if you uh, remember, uh, Mark, but there used to be pubs, social clubs within uh, railway stations where the the train drivers would sit and wait to be go on shift and there'd be 
uh, seen in there, newspaper in hand, drinking a couple of pints. Uh, train comes in, they jump on, do the shift change over and off they went. So things have drastically changed since then, which which is for the better. Um, you know, it's, it's about the safety of all. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's not just his safety, it's the safety of the people around him, work friends, workmates, and also members of the public. Uh, and every company has a duty of care. Now, within the, within the network rail infrastructure, um, people sign up to something that's called Sentinel, which is like, a, a, I suppose, a, a membership card. So if you're working with the railway infrastructure, uh, you need, and you're working uh, trackside, you've got a PTS, um, you undertake drug and alcohol testing and medicals and, and everything else. And everything is loaded up to the Sentinel system. It used to be quite an antiquated system, but now it's all online and real-time data. So the Sentinel card allows people, managers, site managers, companies, etc., to be able to look at that person, identify who they are, that they're, um, you know, they have the competencies that they claim that they've got, and also to be able to um, make sure that they've passed for fitness, for work, i.e., drug and alcohol testing, medicals, etc. Now, if this had occurred on the railway infrastructure, that person failing a drugs and alcohol test would have had his Sentinel card revoked. And at that point, it means that that person cannot work within the rail infrastructure within the UK now for the next five years. It used to be for life and then it was reduced to five years. So he could not have gone to go and work for another company and then been seen trackside working for that company, um, you know, for the next five years. However, with the construction industry, it's very, very different. And, you know, this is not an isolated story. And weirdly enough, uh, Mark, it's not even isolated within companies. So uh, I know um, I could reel off many, many different stories, but I know of a perfect story where I could say in London, with a major construction company, a guy was sacked, very similar story. And the day after, the day after, he was on working for exactly the same company, but on a project which was on the opposite side of the road. So the communication within that company wasn't enough to be able to, 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 to prevent that from happening. Now, again, if you go back and remember maybe 15 years ago, a lot of the large construction companies were, they, they were outed for having a blacklist of employees and stuff. And I think that caused quite a few issues. Um, I do know that um, in construction, there's a, um, uh, there was a, a thing called Constructing Better Health. Uh, and essentially, you know, what I'd like to see would be a similar sort of card scheme as they have within the rail industry um, that allows people to be able to be identified, competency, everything's online. So if you do go from one employer to another, that they have real-time information about that person, not as a blacklist, but as a health and safety thing, as a competency thing, uh, uh, to give people confidence of who they're employing, who is going to be working alongside somebody, uh, and hopefully reduce the danger that these people are put in. Let's face it, the construction industry takes people in and spits them out, very damaged people, 
and some people don't even get to the end of their career. It, it's interesting you should say that about the card scheme because obviously we, we do have a card scheme in both uh, demolition and construction. We've switched to, um, by and large, a smart card scheme. So, you know, those are readable by electronic devices. So, you know, we can have up-to-date information on their competence and their qualifications and that kind of thing. So a actually adding details of um, drugs and alcohol breaches would not be particularly hard. Um, no, it and, and and it's it's very easily done. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of what you see in the construction industry is has been borrowed or taken or adapted from the rail industry. As you can imagine, most of the big construction companies have a rail presence. So um, what they did within the rail industry, they then rolled out to other parts of uh, of their business. So you're absolutely spot on. You know, it wouldn't be difficult to do it, but I think there is a reticence to do it. Uh, and I think what we need to make sure is it's not a witch hunt, you know, that we have uh, the correct policies in place, the support and the training and the education in place to give people enough knowledge and education to be able to take informed decisions. You know, we won't stop people from taking drugs. We, it just it's one of those things that's going to happen. So how do we inform them? How do we educate them to take responsible choices? How do we make them understand that what they do on a Saturday night might impact their work on a Monday morning? Or if they're going into work 12 hours um, a day, you know, having uh, a mind-altering substance, whether that be alcohol, illegal drugs, or prescription medication, uh, you know, having that within their system, uh, it can cause them danger, um, you know, threat to life. I mean, you know, the consequences here are, aren't just, you know, hurting your hand, you know, that they are basically the threat to somebody's life. And um, I, I'm not sure, Mark, if you've ever been involved in an HSE investigation where somebody's died on site. Um, it's 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 a pretty horrific thing. Never mind having to go and knock on somebody's door or pick up the phone and say that husband or wife is is not coming home today. I come from a generation that um, I, I think my, my my weapon of choice back in the day um, was lager. Um, I mean, I, I've not touched alcohol in probably twelve years now, so um, I, I'm I'm completely off the wagon, but. I've never really understood the appeal of, of actual drugs as such, you know, pills and potions and that kind of thing. But but the use of drugs these days is, is incredibly widespread. What type of drugs are we talking about here? So the, the most widely used drug in the UK, illegal drug, uh, would be um, cannabis. The most widely used legal drug is alcohol. Um, so if we look at illegal drugs, cannabis is most widely used. Uh, and then it's uh, followed by cocaine. You know, the, the UK has a cocaine epidemic and it's getting worse. It's as simple as that. If you um, Google all the, the drugs busts that have happened by the National Crime Agency over this past year during lockdown, okay, and count up, I think it's running up very close to billions of pounds worth of cocaine that's been seized this year alone on its way into the UK. The UK is tiny, but we, you know, we are the, the second largest consumer of cocaine in the world um, after the USA, size for size, population size, and everything else. Um, you know, and it it's very much 
used to be the drug of choice for um, you know the sort of high end, higher high earners that type of thing. It was a very expensive drug. It's very attainable. It's very very attainable. You know the price of drugs really hasn't escalated massively. Um, you know, in fact, it's come down. And um, you know, during the the nineties when you'd get a, an ecstasy pill for 25, 30 pounds, you now can get one of those for a couple of quid. It's it's that easy. Um, the purity of drugs uh, goes up and down. It's a bit like a roller coaster. Um, but right now we're seeing very pure drugs hitting the, hitting the market. So a high purity level and a cheap price. Um, and, you know, that is a mixture for, for danger. Um, the appeal of drugs is just like the appeal of alcohol. Um, you know, people look for a buzz. They look for something different. They look for an escape. Some drugs are addictive, both physically and mentally. Um, you know, people develop habits, people develop dependencies, people develop addictions. And whether that be through prescription drugs, alcohol, uh, or illegal drugs, um, you know, these, these things will always happen It's human nature. So whereas, um, you know, you, the Just Say No campaign that we saw on Grange Hill and, you know, during the 80s and that type of thing, and, and the same with the Ronald Reagan era, it doesn't work. It's as simple as that. Just say no doesn't work. And if you've got kids, don't go and sit there and say, don't take drugs, because that's basically the feed that they need to go and, and say, well, I am my own person. I'll go and experiment. So it's it's all about education. To me, it's about education. It's about harm reduction. Um, I truly believe that, you know, we should give everybody the information that we can possibly give to be able to say, look, if you're going to take drugs, educate yourself. Know what what could be in that drug, know how it could harm you short term and long term, and also know the consequences of going to work and uh, hurting yourself or somebody else, or just simply being called up for a random drug test and failing. You know, think about the consequences of losing your job. Think about the consequences of losing your job on the railway network, and that means that you've probably lost your livelihood, and now you're going to have to swap industries. So, you know, all this education needs to be out there. And I think there's a severe lack of education. Uh, companies just sort of say, well, we've got a drug and alcohol policy. Everybody's going to go and read that. And, you know, if they fail it, it's their own fault. But we all know, Mark, that policies sit there, you know, 20 odd page policies. People don't read them. They sit there gathering dust. Uh, so we need to educate people. We need to educate people. I, you know, I deliver a, a talk called it, it started with a spliff, which is all about educating people who are taking drugs in work. It's as simple as that. Recognize and admit that your workforce is going to have people that drink. It's going to have people that take drugs. It's going to have people that have a dependency and addiction to prescription medication, alcohol, illegal drugs, whatever it is. Admit that, stand up and say, we know that's here, then do something about it. By trying to be proactive at the front end will hopefully help reduce harm at the back end. There has to be consequences. So that policy needs to be there to police it. But by giving people all the information they need at the front end to say, look, this is what we, we need to do. This is where you can get help. 
if you feel that you're having problems, come and speak to us and you won't get sacked. The problem being is if you don't come and ask for help or you don't have a, you know, uh, don't don't get recognised as having needing help, and then that develops into an accident or an incident or what we would call a four cause. So somebody says, a manager says, well, I can smell alcohol in his breath. He needs testing or he's acting in a strange way or, you know, he's damaged some property. We, we need to test them. Um, you know, once you then have a positive result from that, unfortunately, you know, uh, a disciplinary procedures probably take precedent. So um, I hope that I hope that sort of explains a little bit. Uh, it certainly does. I mean, you, you mentioned specifically um, cannabis and cocaine. For the, the the uninitiated, how might those two impair a, a, a worker's ability to work safely and responsibly? Okay, so um, one of the biggest issues regarding cannabis, for instance, is um, how long it can remain in your system detectable. Um, now, if you're testing within urine, uh, it can remain for somebody that's a chronic user. So somebody that's smoking every day, maybe five, six spliffs a day. Uh, if they were to stop, that would remain detectable in their system, in their urine system, for possibly 28, 30 days. And the, the reason behind that is because it's a fat-soluble metabolite and slowly gets released over time. So if you're somebody like me and you're carrying quite a bit of fat, then basically your body's going to burn that fat and metabolize it and and basically release those uh, metabolites over time. So if I was smoking five, six, seven spliffs a day, and I've been smoking for quite a number of weeks, and then I stop, and you do a urine test on me, it's likely to take three, four, five weeks for it to become non-detectable in the urine sample. Within an oral fluid sample, that's very, very different, and it's what we call the window of detection. So the window of detection for cannabis within oral fluid is 12 to 24 hours. So one of the things that we need to uh, understand is the difference between under the influence and impairment. So the best way to try and uh, explain that to you, Mark, would be if you were stopped roadside by a policeman and they smell alcohol in your breath, they would probably ask you to take a breath test. At that point, they're going to measure you using a breathalyzer. And the drink drive level in England and Wales is 35. In Scotland, it's 22. It's lower. It's the European level. So uh, you can blow into that breathalyzer, and let's say you blow 30. Now, that policeman can still arrest you for being impaired through drink or drugs. You've passed the drink drive level, so you're not classed as being under the influence but you can still be impaired so if you're dry if he believes that you're driving or he she believes you're driving has been impaired through drink or drugs then they can arrest you for that so you've got to understand that the window of detection for drugs is different and for all drugs that's different but again are we looking for impairment are we looking for under the influence uh, are we looking for somebody's lifestyle choices? Are we looking for somebody's choices uh, on turning up for work? And this is where the big debate is. So within railway testing, everything's done by urine sampling. So 
unfortunately, somebody that smokes cannabis at a weekend regularly may find that they come foul of that because traces of their uh, habit or traces of their use might be in the urine for days, weeks to come. Whereas if you look at um, roadside testing is all done via saliva or oral fluid. Uh, so it will only pick up a few hours after use uh, because they're looking to criminally prosecute you um, and be able to say that you were definitely impaired and under the influence at the time. Um, one of the things that you know people often forget is they always think of impairment. So the, again, I always use alcohol uh, as best I can for an example because most people have experienced alcohol use and abuse. So Mark, have you ever been drunk? Uh, yes, been a long while, but yes, I have, yeah. Uh, drunk to the point of stupor? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Drunk to the point where the next day you had a massive hangover and didn't feel very well? That's one of the key reasons I gave up. My, my, I'm of an age now where my hangovers last for at least three days. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, but the alcohol's left your system by that point. Did you still feel impaired in the afternoon? Sleepy, groggy, senses not quite right, bit snappy, bit angry maybe? Well, I'm, I'm generally angry and snappy anyway, but yes, I, I mean, it, yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly do, you know, I, I mean, my, my, as I say, my hangovers were, were very, very bad and, and yeah, I, I was terrible for two or three days. Exactly. So we have immediate impairment, i.e. you're drunk. Then we have the long-term impairment, which are the after effects of that chemical imbalance in your system. And it's exactly the same with drugs. So you might take drugs on a Saturday night, and that high goes up, and then Sunday morning, they'll still be in your system for a bit. Sunday afternoon, they've left your system. So you're not in the immediate impairment section, but if you haven't slept or haven't eaten, and you've got those chemical imbalances, every high has a low. It's as simple as that. So for maybe a day, two days, three days later, as you've just said, you know, you might be feeling the after effects of taking that drug and alcohol is a drug, um, you know, so you have the after effects and that can impair us. So education around all that type of thing, training for managers and supervisors to be able to spot the signs and symptoms, to be able to know how to deal with it in a compassionate, uh, uh, but also in a, uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a way which fits in with their company policy. Being able to put our hands around friends and mates and say, is everything all right? you know, um, I can smell this on your breath, um, you know, what's going on? Oh, I had a few last night. Okay, you shouldn't be in work. Uh, you know, let's go and speak to somebody before somebody else spots this going on. You know, these are the sort of things that we need to look at. Accident, incident prevention, rather than testing after the cause. But unfortunately, we have to have both um, because... There's many people that will just stick up two fingers and say, it's my human right. I can take drugs, do whatever I want to do. I can drink alcohol, do whatever I want to do, and I'll come to work. I've never had a, I've never had an accident in 20 years, and I've been smoking pot as a crane driver, okay? Simple as that. Never had an accident or an incident in 20 years, so it doesn't impair me. And then one time, 
they have an accident, it will it it has impaired them and it will impact on that person and all the people around them for the rest of their life. I'm not one of those people that thinks that drug users and alcohol users should be locked up. Um, but I'm also aware of the potential damage that could be done by somebody operating an excavator or a crane or a dump truck while under the influence. And I guess all this comes down to a robust testing policy, but also, I guess, offering support to those that are found to be misusing drugs and alcohol, you know, even if that is in complete contradiction to company policy of in employment and that kind of thing. First port of call, I guess, is testing. Second port of call is is support, and and only then can you really get down to the the, the idea of dismissal and, and and potential, you know, termination of employment. I guess uh, it's interesting, actually, Mark, because policy comes first. Writing a robust and legally defensible policy, which includes support, is really important. So getting that right. Quite often, the amount of policies I see, which are a one-page policy that basically says, uh, and this this word, this term is always used wrongly, zero tolerance, okay? We have zero tolerance. Uh, and it doesn't really go into explain. Uh, and essentially what that does is it alienates people. So having a supportive, robust, and legally defensible policy and procedures is really, really important. And you can't get that detail in a one-page document. It's as simple as that. You need to be able to explain, you need to be able to help people, you need to have things in place so that it doesn't get to that disciplinary uh, procedure. It will get there for some people, unfortunately, that's just the way it is. It's the same with drink driving. We all know that we shouldn't drink drive, and we all know the police are out there with the ability to stop us and test us and lose our license but we still have drink drive convictions. Um, I was reading something this morning about uh, North Wales with, with drug driving and the drug driving uh, level has gone up. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things, it's human factors. So get the policy procedures right, that's the first thing. Then we need to put in education and training. You, you know, you wouldn't throw me the keys of that machine that you were showing earlier on, but, and expect me to be able to drive it, would you? No, certainly not. No. So you need to educate me and train me on how to do um, police the policy, how to look out for the signs, how to support our staff. And the simple thing is a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. So what we need to do is give managers, supervisors the correct support and education and training required for them to be able to successfully manage that policy and manage their staff. We also need to give the staff the education enough for them to be able to take informed choices, know what the consequences are, know where to get help, know when you'll get help and when you won't get help. So I'm a strong believer like you are, Mark, that you know we need to try and support people. Um, people take drugs, drink alcohol for many different reasons. Um, you know, we've just gone through 12 months of lockdown pandemic, whatever it might be. The issues around mental health, uh, drug and alcohol use, um, I'm pretty sure it's going to be the one of the long-standing um, problems that come out of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, you know, there's people who quite obviously are drinking more at home. 
uh, and drinking earlier at home. Um, you know, Friday afternoon, four o'clock comes along, nobody will know. I've not got any Zoom meetings, so I might sit here with a glass of wine while I just finish off my work for the week. And that glass of wine is not a pub measure glass of wine, that's a home measure glass of wine, third, third of a bottle, quite usually. So, um, you know, these things are happening. We need to have support in place, and that needs to be written into a policy. But that support needs to be there for people who come forward and ask for it, or who are recognised and admit and hold their hands up and say, yeah, I need some help. Um, you have to have consequences for people who quite obviously don't want help and are more than happy to come to work, put their own lives at danger, put their fellow employees' lives at danger, members of the public. You know, your industry, you're dealing with um, life-threatening situations every single day. To be slightly impaired, whether it be through drink, drugs, sleep deprivation, mobile phones, you know, all these separate things you need to have rules and regulations and education about, and it's no different. Um, if we can support people, fantastic. But there needs to be a recognition of what the issue is, that they want support, that they then go through support, that they then return back to work in a safe manner. So the testing part really is the very end. It's a tool that managers, supervisors, companies can utilize to be able to measure where that person is at. You know, the first things first should should all be accounted for. The, the, the tool for measuring would be the testing. So it's that proof we need. So, you know, Mark, if I met you on site and I could smell alcohol in your breath, and I was an old school manager, I'd turn around to you and go, go on, Mark, F off the site, you're pissed. And you'd turn around to me and say, no, I'm not. I'm perfectly fine. And we'd have this argument, and it's my opinion against yours, but by simply grabbing a breathalyzer and saying, okay, Mark, I can smell alcohol in your breath. We have a policy that says this. You were educated about that. You signed up for it. You know all about it. It's in our toolbox talks every other week or whatever it might be as a reminder there's posters everywhere can you blow into that you blow into it and you're under the company level perfect fantastic so me as a manager i've smelled alcohol in your breath I've, I've grabbed a tool which i can then very quickly establish whether you're breaking rules or not so you're not breaking rules that's fine but this is a touch point now for me to turn around to you and say that's fine, Mark, but you've come into work with alcohol in your system. When you were driving into work this morning, you might have been over the limit, but any amount of alcohol in your system can cause impairment. So that could be the touch point that Mark needs to think about, ah, well, actually, yeah, I didn't stop drinking till 2 o'clock, and I start my shift at 8 so perhaps maybe I should think about that next time. You know, and that is the prevention. That's the being proactive. That's using the policy to be able to deliver more information and, and have another touch point with your employees.
In, in many ways, that echoes the conversation that's been going on in certainly in the demolition industry um, about mental health. That idea of it's not just asking the first question; it's asking the follow-up question, and you know, it's arms around shoulders and and that kind of thing. And, and I have to say, you know, I would tip my hat. The National Federation of Demolition Contractors um, have done a lot of work on mental health awareness, and and in some ways, as you rightly say, I mean, particularly with with the fallout from COVID and that kind of thing, this is in some ways an extension to that, isn't it? It is, and they go hand in hand, Mark. You know, people with mental health issues will be looking for a crutch, whether that be prescription medication, illegal drugs, whatever it might be. The majority of people will look for solace within a substance misuse, or people with substance misuse problems quite often develop mental health issues. They go hand in hand, it's as simple as that. I'm not saying that 100% and 100% that, that, that's by the by. But they do go hand in hand. Um, depression, okay? So I'm depressed. I drink alcohol. It makes me feel good. But actually, alcohol is a depressant. So guess what happens? I'm just going to go into a spiral. If I drink more, I become depressed more. I drink more, I become more depressed, etc., etc. And it becomes out of hand. But the, the mental health issue, and I was... Um, I was on uh, a forum yesterday when we were discussing uh, mental health, specifically for men, to be honest with you, Mark, um, because, you know, as men, we bottle it up. We don't like to open up about our feelings. We don't like to admit that we have issues. You know, it, it's encouraging that thing. So like you say, putting your arm around somebody and saying, how are you? And they go, yeah, yeah, I'm great, thanks. No, seriously, how are you? Because I've noticed, you know, you're slightly different now. Well, actually, I didn't want to say anything, but... And that opening conversation is what we need to educate people about because that opening conversation could be, well, actually, Mark, I didn't want to say anything because, you know, I'm quite a private person, but my wife's left me and I've been kicked out of the house and I've been sleeping in digs and uh, I've been drinking a lot more. Than, than, than I normally would. I normally only have a few beers on Saturday, but I'm, I'm finding that I'm drinking every day. I've got nothing else to do, and my mind's playing tricks with me, et cetera, et cetera. And you put your arm around me and go, right, let's go and talk to somebody about this. I don't want you to lose your job because of that, Matt. Let's go and have a sit down. Let's go and speak to occupational health. Let's go and get you some help because the last thing you want is to hurt somebody, hurt yourself, and I want you to get better. Totally. We just had a comment here from uh, Neil Edwards, who is the CEO of the Builders Conference, um, market intelligence provider, and the Trade Association. It, it is a, an important discussion point, um, and it's it's one that I, I get the impression isn't happening quite as openly. As I say, I mean, I I, I I will tip my hat to people that are talking about mental health awareness, but to a degree, and I'm not accusing anyone of this, but to a degree, that's become a bit of a bandwagon. Um, I, wasn't, and I wasn't going to say it, Mark, but yeah, now you've brought it up, it's very on trend. Um, you know, mental health um, first aiders, okay? So, you know, everybody's going on a mental health first aider course, and now we've got mental health first aiders. We don't have a problem with mental health because we've got mental health first aiders, FI. So if you look at it from that topic, do we have drugs and alcohol first aiders? We don't. No. So if we're training people to spot mental health issues, 
surely we should be training people to spot drugs and alcohol issues, which are just as prevalent. No, totally right. Uh, Matt, I, I am aware I'm taking up great lumps of your Friday uh, uh, morning, and I'm sure you've got better things to do. Um, I am going to let you go. One one thing I would say, you, you mentioned the fact that you, you have a presentation. Uh, it started with a spliff. Uh, I don't know quite what your your um, system is for delivering that. But at some point, I'd love to get you back and, and literally just sort of open up our airwaves and let you do that presentation to, to our community, because uh, I do think there would be serious value in that. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that one offline. But before you, you head off, I think it's going across the bottom of the screen. I'm just going to check. Uh, yes, it is. Is that the best place to find you and details of your testing and, and your, your, you know, your speaking and everything else? It is, but I'm more than happy for you to give out my email address, Mark, which is matt at itstestkits.com. So matt, M-A-T-T, at itstestkits.com. Um, if it helps any of your guys, uh, I do. I have written a publication around policy. It's quite a, a wordy booklet and talks about uh, best practice. And there's, a, there's actually a, a tick list at the end of it so that you can go through your policy and see if it, sort of meets the sort of robustness and requirements, et cetera. Uh, and I have a lot of um, information and I put a lot of, um, I suppose, content and value out via things like LinkedIn, which, you know, we, we discuss quite often on Mark, uh, you know, so if people want to follow me on LinkedIn, they'll be able to, to, to pick up things on there as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm more than open to have a chat. You know, you don't need to do business with us for us to have a chat. Um, you know, I'm very passionate about what I do. Uh, I want the workplace to be a safer place. Um, and whatever we can do to do that is, to me, quite honestly, the value what, what, which we need to give to our communities. No, totally right. Totally right. Um, I, I will grab that link for from your uh, for your document um, when the show's over and done with, and I will add that to the show notes for today as well. I'll also add your your email address. But in the meantime, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I really appreciate your insight on on what is a, a, a very challenging topic, um, and I will speak to you again very very soon. Lovely to see you. Keep up the great work, Mark. Cheers. Thanks, Thank Matt. You. All the best. Cheers.